0: All right, thank you so much. I'm grateful for that fun welcome and announcements and all of just, again, it's so great to connect with all of you guys after it's been a bit. Let me pull up my notes. All right, so a looming disaster threatens the planet. Scientists sound alarms with little public response Politicians are more invested in polishing their image than taking action to save lives. Media conglomerates are focused not on what people need to hear to be safe, but what stories will drive engagement, thus boosting their ad revenue. Cable news personalities do their part to keep the news light, no matter how serious it is. Big tech entrepreneurs are influencing public policy to secure even more resources for themselves and the general public is too distracted by the latest social media challenge or celebrity breakup to notice the real danger coming their way. So is what I just described a depiction of fiction or reality? The answer of course is both. On one hand, everything I just described to you is from a work of fiction. These are all plot points in the film that recently came out through Netflix, which a few of us gathered to discuss last week, maybe more of you have seen, Um, Don't Look Up. It's a dark comedic satire telling the story of a climate-related disaster, in this case, a planet-killing comet discovered that's hurtling straight towards Earth. But though the plot points and characters themselves are fictional, they ring with an eerie kind of truth because to at least some degree, many would argue that each of these things I've just described is in some way happening. The details might be different. The problems in the film might be a bit exaggerated, but the resonance is real. So much so that the audience is often caught watching the film not quite sure whether they should laugh or cry. It might be a comedy but the dark realities this film depicts are at times so disturbingly true, it's hard to laugh at them. Well, I start by highlighting this work of satire, not to promote the film one way or the other, but because it seems to me like an excellent contemporary example of a particular mode of storytelling. Telling a story that provokes. Film critics and audiences will continue to debate whether Don't Look Up was like a good movie. The reviews on it are decidedly mixed. But what is clear is the film is provocative. It solicits a response and not purely for entertainment value. Through the response, through the discomfort, through the debate, lessons are intended to be communicated. The hope by the storyteller is that in watching the film, something's gonna be revealed the audience will discover something about the world around them, perhaps about themselves, that they hadn't discovered before. And this style of storytelling is not new. We, We see examples of this way of telling a story in different literary sources throughout the ages, from the works of Shakespeare to the Hebrew Bible. Stories that provoke have been with us a long time, and they were certainly a part of the ancient world, that Jesus inhabited. And that brings us to our conversation for today and for several weeks to come. Whatever one believes about Jesus, what seems not to be disputed by many is that he was a master teacher of spiritual truth. And one of the primary ways he taught was through provocative stories. He told stories to surprise, to disturb, to reveal. As one biblical scholar and a former seminary professor of mine says it, they were stories with intent. And these are the kind of stories I'm going to invite us to consider and hopefully be a bit provoked by over the next couple of months in a new teaching series I'm calling A Story-Shaped Faith. So over the next several weeks, extending through the roughly six-week season of Lent leading up to Easter, We're going to take a look at several of the provocative stories of Jesus, stories we call parables, and we'll consider together how these stories were intended to shape the faith of people in Jesus's day as well as how they might still shape our own. Now if you've been in church a while, a lot of these stories are probably going to be familiar, but I would like to suggest that potentially in the telling and retelling and many centuries passing, many of these stories have lost a lot of their provocative power. And it makes sense why, when you think about it. I mean, even 50 years from now, even 10 years from now, audiences not familiar with the cultural moment we're in right now are probably gonna miss a lot of the commentary, the social commentary that the filmmaker behind Don't Look Up is trying to convey. Because unless they've studied their history, those folks in the future aren't gonna get all the references. How much more is that likely to be the case for us with a set of stories told over 2000 years ago by a Jewish peasant living on the other side of the globe? While there's no way we can close all of the cultural distance between ourselves and Jesus's original audience, over the coming weeks, we will do our best to examine these stories afresh learn what we can about the world they were spoken in, and see if we too might be shaped by these stories with intent in some helpful ways. So to start, let's just you know frame the conversation. What exactly are the parables? What does that term even mean? We have a slide for this. The word parable comes from the Greek. Uh, it's actually two Greek words, para, meaning alongside, or together with, as in the word parallel. And then there's the word balo, which means to throw. So a parable to quite literally is a story that throws alongside. It thrusts upon us something parallel to our life in order to illustrate something in it. Okay, so you can take that down. As I've already alluded to, Uh, Parables were a significant part of the culture Jesus inhabited. They appear in the Hebrew Bible. They also appear in the writings of many Jewish rabbis before and after the time of Jesus. Jesus was not alone in his usage of parables, but he definitely like really perfected the art form like he definitely really embraced it and did it well. He certainly used parables in powerful ways that made a significant impact on his audience. Three of the four gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record a number of these parables um, in their account of Jesus's life and teaching. And through these records, these parable stories have continued to impact audiences through the millennia since. So today, as we start the series, we're going to take a brief look at one of these parables, as recorded by Mark. And this story seems like a good place to start a conversation on the parables as it seems to be used by each of those gospel writers to frame Jesus' using using of parables for his audience. It's featured first among the parables in all three gospels that it appears. And it seems to be kind of set up as a parable about parables. It's also one of the only parables that includes some interpretation from Jesus for us to consider. So we're gonna take a look at a familiar story as it's related in the fourth chapter of the book of Mark. And before I go ahead and read it to you, I wanna encourage you as we read to try uh, to pay attention to this reading with a fresh perspective. You probably, you may have heard this story before, but I'm asking you to kind of like try to read it with fresh eyes. Consider what surprises you, what bothers you, what confuses you about this passage. Afterwards, I'm gonna give you a few moments to think about that and if you have, a pen and paper or a screen, like a phone you want to jot a few notes down on, um, I'll encourage you to do that. All right, so let's go ahead and get into the reading. Again, Jesus began to teach by the lake. The crowd that gathered around him was so large that he got into a boat and sat in it out on the lake while all the people were along the shore at the water's edge. And he taught them many things by parables. And in his teaching said, listen, Still others' seed fell on good soil. It came up, grew, and produced a crop, some multiplying 30, some 60, some a hundred times. Then Jesus said, Whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. When he was alone, the twelve and the others around him asked him about the parables. He told them, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. So that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving and ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise they may turn and be forgiven. Then Jesus said to them, don't you understand this parable? How will then you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed along the path where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seeds sown on rocky places, hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things, come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, like seeds sown on good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. He said to them, do you bring in a lamp to put it under a bowl or a bed? Instead, don't you put it on its stand, for whatever is hidden is meant to be disclosed, and whatever is concealed is meant to be brought out into the open. If anyone has ears to hear, let them hear. Consider carefully what you hear, he continued. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and even more. Whoever has will be given more. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. Okay, so that's the passage. Um, Let's take a moment, like I said, to just take a pause consider everything we've just heard and read. And if you wanna make a note or two of your impressions, and we're gonna kind of visit those potentially during our breakout time. So I encourage you to do that. I'll just give you a minute or so. All right, so as we take a look at this story and try to think about what it might tell us about uh, the parables in general, I'm not gonna try to address everything in the text because we just don't have time for that. But there are a few questions that jumped out to me. So maybe some of them will connect with the questions you might've had. I'm gonna share them as well as some things that I learned digging into each of these. And then I'm gonna to try to kind of pull things together and make some meaning out of it, all right? So first, my first question, what does Jesus mean when he tells his disciples that the secret of God's kingdom has been given to them? Like, why does Jesus have secrets? Okay, I think we have a slide for that if you wanna put it up. And I'll just repeat that question one more time for us to think about it. Half the slide. Yeah. What does Jesus mean when he tells his disciples that the secret of God's kingdom has been given to them? Why does Jesus have secrets? Okay. So this like, to me is a weird thing that Jesus is saying, right? Like it kind of feels like he's saying like y'all are in my lucky in crowd and you get the privileged information that nobody else gets and sh- don't tell anyone because it's a secret but that seems to me totally counter to who Jesus seemed to be through everything else we see of him. He seems all about expanding access to the divine, not tightly controlling it. So what gifts? The problem I think here is a textual one. The word that many of our English translations have recorded as secret is actually the Greek word mysterion. And it could just as correctly be translated the mystery So what difference does that make? Both secret and mystery, I think, point to something similar. The idea of information that's been hidden, something that's not fully disclosed. But as I've been thinking about it this week, I think what I've been coming to is how I think there's like a different intentionality behind those words, right? A secret is often kept out of fear or dishonesty or perhaps self-interest. A child asks her friend on the playground to keep her crush a secret, fearful of what others might think. A thief takes something in secret. An investor might not want others to know where he's putting his money, lest his investments be diluted. But a mystery, at least a spiritual mystery, that's different. That kind of mystery recognizes that on some level, information is hidden because it cannot be fully known or understood. Sacred mystery, or what theologians Stephen Boyer and Chris Hall call revelational mystery, isn't a puzzle to be solved like an Agatha Christie book or a secret to be divulged by reading someone's diary. It's more like an understanding to be pondered. They describe it this way. A revelational mystery excites wonder, awe, amazement, astonishment. This is the way a revelational mystery works. We know, and yet the mystery remains. I don't think Jesus was confiding in the 12 or those gathered with him like some protected information that was for their ears only. I think here he's just naming that they are the ones who have received in some way, who've engaged sacred mystery, whatever that might mean. And that brings me to my next question. So what about this quote that comes right after the mystery line? The next thing he says is that um, to those on the outside, everything is in parables. And then he shares this quote saying they, that they may be ever seeing, but never perceiving, ever hearing, but never understanding. Otherwise, they may turn and be forgiven. So is Jesus really saying he doesn't want people to receive forgiveness? That seems weird, right? Well, here too, I think we can't really appreciate uh, what's being said if we don't appreciate the context Jesus is pointing to. So this quote comes from Isaiah chapter 6. It's spoken by God when the divine calls Isaiah as a prophet and encourages him to speak to God's people, the warnings God is sending him to preach. Warnings intending to provoke change in the hearts and behaviors of God's people. At the time, the people were living unjustly, oppressing their neighbors, living in ways that grieved the heart of God, and Isaiah was called to speak this truth to people who didn't want to hear it, and also named that if they couldn't change their ways, things wouldn't go well for them there would be consequences to their unwillingness to heed the words of the prophet. But even as God calls Isaiah, it's like God names to him that God anticipates that the people will be obstinate. Their hearts were becoming hardened, God was naming. And then with what many scholars understand to be like clear sarcasm, God says, otherwise they might turn and be healed or in some translations forgiven. So this is to me like the frustration of a parent with a stubborn teenager, which I am getting into the season of life of understanding. That sense of like, oh yes, I'm such a cruel parent making you study. God forbid you do your homework and actually get into a good college. We wouldn't want that, would we? It's sarcasm. Of course, the divine desires the turning and healing of God's people. That is why God is sending the prophet but the divine also understands. People will make their own decisions, including at times, reckless ones. Parents of teenagers understand that too. In ancient Israel, this text, Isaiah 6, had become an important moment in Israel's story. This text became emblematic for the truth that the prophet's call is often a lonely one. The prophet is often called to speak uncomfortable truths that won't be embraced by everyone who hears them. By Jesus's day, Isaiah six was the go-to text that other prophets like Jeremiah or rabbis pointed to when they wanted to name this stubbornness of the people who aren't interested in hearing the prophet's message. By quoting Isaiah, Jesus was framing for his listeners the work he was doing. He's saying, I'm coming in the way of the prophets before me. And like many of the prophets before me, my teachings probably aren't gonna be received by everyone who hears them. So there's one more question I wanted to probe a bit before trying to make some meaning of this passage. And that is this, how are we to understand Jesus's interpretation of this parable? That's a unique thing, like I said before, that we have some sort of interpretation. So what is it meant to tell? And more potentially, more interestingly, what is left for the audience to discover? So I don't know about you, but often when I've heard this story preached or explored in some sort of Christian Bible study, Jesus's interpretation is pointed to as like a pretty clear key for explaining in a rather obvious way, the meaning of the parable. Jesus talks about the seed being planted as the word and different people respond to the word in different ways. And typically there's like an invitation in those contexts to define the good productive soil as the life of the good Bible believing Christian who responds positively to the gospel maybe recognizes Jesus died for their sins, prays a a special prayer, puts their faith in Jesus Christ and allows Jesus to bear spiritual fruit in their lives. There's also potentially an invitation, not always stated explicitly, but often implied, to look on others whose lives aren't maybe so spiritually bountiful as those other kinds of not so good soils. But is that really what Jesus is saying? Is his interpretation that clear? I mean, first off, interestingly, Jesus never defines who he thinks the sower actually is. He doesn't say if the sower is God or himself or the disciples who are listening to him. All he makes clear is the sower is someone trying to communicate something. The farmer sows the word. Jesus also doesn't make clear what he means by the word. Christians have often filled in the blanks on that. Well, he means a certain version of the gospel. He means Jesus himself. Jesus is the word of God. He means the Bible. But none of those are stated. And when you think about it, none of them really make sense in the context. Even the actual word, word can be misleading. The Greek word Jesus is using here is logos. The farmer sows the logos. Now, logos refers to content. It doesn't refer to form. So in Greek, there was a word for a set of letters on a page. Like when you read a, what we would consider a word, you would talk about lexis. That's the word for word <laughs> in terms of form. There was also a word for a book or a, a set of writings um, on, on paper or in scroll, right? That was a biblion. Logos is the word for the heart of an argument, the message. The logic of it. So Jesus is describing someone sharing their message, the heart of their argument, but who it is or exactly what that logos is, isn't really explained. I think there's a reason Jesus isn't more explicit. His explanation, I think, was intended to help people make some connections, but only so they could do the work themselves of pondering what it meant further. And this is exactly how ancient parables were intended to work, to open up conversations, not shut them down. Dr. Amy Jill Levine is a woman who identifies as Jewish and also a New Testament scholar, which brings a really unique perspective to her work on the New Testament. And I'm gonna be pointing to her work in this series because I think it's very helpful. But she makes this point um, explicitly about parables. When we seek universal morals from a genre that is designed to surprise, challenge, shake up, or indict and look for a single meaning in a form that opens to multiple interpretations, we are necessarily limiting the parables and so ourselves. I don't think Jesus was intending his interpretation to limit his parable. And we shouldn't want to limit the parables in our discussions of them either by trying to solve them as if there was only one answer, trying to reduce them to one interpretation. And yet we are called to make some meaning. And so after answering those few questions, I'm gonna try to name a few things that I think might be helpful takeaways from this passage. As we look to ponder why Jesus uses this particular teaching form and how these stories might be helpful in shaping our faith. So the first takeaway I wanna name that I see this passage pointing to is that prophetic teaching will inevitably be rejected by many who hear it. And the prophet might find this discouraging, but they must speak their message regardless because some folks will be ready to hear it and be impacted for the better. Okay, I'll just read that one more time. Prophetic teaching will inevitably be rejected by many who hear it. The prophet might find that discouraging, but they must speak their message regardless because some folks will be ready to hear it and be impacted for the better. It's interesting where this story appears in the narrative Mark is telling. The way he tells the story, this incident of Jesus teaching this parable comes early in his ministry, but it comes right after he's just received a visit from his family, and they come to try to fetch him as he's in the midst of preaching and healing and doing his thing, but he won't go to them. Instead, he points to the followers around him who are really attentive to what he's doing, and he says, these are my mothers and my brothers, he says. Clearly, Jesus' is naming not everyone can appreciate, The work he's come to do, the message he has to give, even his own family doesn't seem to get it. But the fact that his family doesn't understand him isn't a reason to stop speaking what he's there to speak, nor is it a reason to cut them off. He can love folks, whether they can receive his message or not, and he can also stay faithful to the work of continuing to speak it. Now on one level, it strikes me that this was a helpful way to frame what Jesus' listeners were seeing in their midst, as some folks were drawing close to Jesus, like these disciples, like these close followers, and others are growing frustrated with him. But it also strikes me as helpful information for those followers, who themselves would eventually be sent out to speak prophetic truths to folks, some of whom would be receptive and some of whom really wouldn't be. In the same way, we too may consider how this understanding might impact us with the prophetic truths we feel called to speak. No doubt, filmmaker Adam McKay, when he made Don't Look Up knew not everyone was gonna love his film. If he wanted to make a film that would not provoke, would not offend anyone, it wouldn't have been that film. But knowing that it wouldn't be for everyone, he told the story the way he told it with the hopes that some people would receive his message that would not, it would not have gotten through otherwise. And that brings me to my next takeaway. Parables are not meant to obscure the truth, but to reveal it. As we wrestle with the mystery, more is revealed in it. Again, parables are not meant to obscure the truth, but to reveal it. It's in the wrestling with the mysterion that we get more from it. So in any given crowd, there are gonna be some people who respond to a message without a lot of work. They're like the easy cells. They respond because they already care about the issue, because they respect the messenger, right? Because uh, because they really believe in the science. And then there are those for whom just stating things clearly is just not that effective, perhaps. They already think they know what they believe on the topic. They have their trusted sources and it's not that raggedy rabbi or it's not that New York Times. Haven't we seen this again and again in the last couple of years when it comes to COVID, to vaccines, to masks? Psychologists tell us all of us have confirmation bias. We're most likely to accept things that confirm the beliefs we already hold. In those instances, new information has to come in a more indirect way, if it's going to be integrated. And stories that provoke are one of the most powerful ways that can happen. So the parables aren't meant to obscure the truth, only to reveal it. They obscure enough to be indirect, so that something new can get through. Jesus isn't telling parables to hide the truth from people. He's inviting them into mysteries so they can discover new truth for themselves. This is the sign of a wise teacher who knows that any discovery we make on our own is more likely to be one that we'll hold on to rather than just more information someone else has told us. The parables are intended both to catch the skeptics by surprise and call even the closest followers of Jesus to do some work, to wrestle with mystery, to learn something new about themselves, perhaps the ways of the divine that they hadn't understood before. This is why I think we have that second brief parable about the lamp and why I included it in our passage. I think this is Jesus emphasizing He does not want his message ultimately to be hidden away. What a loss that would be. It's as ridiculous as putting a lamp under a bowl. Rather, the concealment is meant to bring a deeper kind of revelation. For those who will do the work of pondering the meaning, they will receive more clarity. To the measure they they enter in, more will be given. Those who are too distracted or apathetic to try are just not gonna get the benefit. And that brings me to my final takeaway for us. There's a difference between hearing with our ears and hearing with our hearts. Unless we allow the message we receive to provoke us in our minds and spirits and ultimately impact our behavior, we haven't really received it. And I think this is ultimately what Jesus is hoping people will lean into. Go beyond the hearing with with the ears, move into the hearing with the hearts. Did you notice how often there are references in this passage to hearing or listening? The first word Jesus says here is listen. Multiple times he, he ends a statement by saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again and again, Jesus is emphasizing listening. But it's clear he doesn't just mean what happens with our ears. Throughout the passage, through the reference to Isaiah, through the parable itself, and through his explanation of it, Jesus is naming the difference between learning something and really absorbing it. It's not enough to just receive communication. If we want the logos to make a meaningful impact on our lives, to bear measurable fruit, it needs to sink deeper in our soil, a soil that's clear of rocks and thorns. We have to be willing to be provoked. I wonder if what he meant when Jesus told the smaller group the mystery had been given to them was that he saw These folks are starting to do the work. They cared. That's why they came to Jesus with their questions. They wanted more understanding. The parables were starting to provoke them. And Jesus would keep telling those parables with the hope of calling more into this mysterious work of pondering, of debating, of being disturbed. He would keep telling parables with the hopes that more of those who heard them would begin to enter the mystery in a meaningful way too. And this, I hope, is a call to us over the next couple of months as well. I wonder how Jesus might feel about the reality today, that his stories, which were meant to provoke, have been so domesticated by his followers through the millennia, usually at times tamed not to pull them into mystery, but to reduce them to simple morals that confirm the the biases of those who interpret them. Don't worry, Christian, you're in church. That means you're the good soil. What if instead Jesus's followers asked one another, what message are you open to hearing today? What message might you reject or not be willing to think too deeply about if you heard it? What might it mean if a different perspective was disturbing to you? Would you let it sink in deep or would you just let it fall away? friends whatever our experiences have been of these parables in the past i hope over the next several weeks as we look at these stories of jesus we might encourage ourselves and one another not to settle for easy answers or simple tried and true interpretations may we let these stories work in us something new may we let them call us into deeper into divine mystery. May we even see meaningful change in the way we live as they work on us. And as all of that happens, may we and the spirit that sows into us rejoice in the bountiful harvest of new life that might blossom in our midst. May it be so. Amen. Amen. I'm going to pray for us along those lines, and then we're going to take some time to to talk about all this together, if that sounds good. All right. Hmm. Holy Spirit, I am grateful for the way that you have moved throughout the ages to speak truth in all the ways that people need to hear it that you understand our obstinance and you also understand what can prick our hearts. You have uh, both confidence in our stubbornness (laughs) that that exists as well as confidence in our ability to be moved. And so God, we, uh, we name that we come recognizing that we have been obstinate at different times and that we may feel that today, but we also long to be shaped by your work in our midst. Would you be opening us to that shaping in new ways? Would that opening continue throughout this set of conversations we have in the weeks to come? And may we find harvest in our midst in ways that we weren't expecting. Amen.